little breaking news as we sat down to record today, Dad. It looks like, kind of as expected, the SEC has delayed ARK's Bitcoin ETF application. This is the one from Kathy Wood's shop, and uh, they they always tend to do this kind of stuff for these types of applications. And it, it was announced this morning that they are indeed going to delay it. They have uh, 240 days to make a final decision. They're going to review it, and they have opened it up to general public comment for three weeks to weigh in on the proposal itself. And then they're going to give an additional five weeks to respond to those initial comments. Now, why is ARK's ETF application the first to be delayed? This was filed before the BlackRock application? Right. I think that's the case. I honestly wasn't paying much attention to ARC because, you know, Kathy Wood, I mean, she's a bull. And so, of, of course, she had an ETF filed. Right. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Kathy Wood in that if she'd retired in 2019, she would have been the best asset manager in history. <laughs> What's interesting is the SEC replied to ARC with a letter that actually seems kind of bullish. Right? I mean, the whole concern was about market manipulation. And so they came up with these surveillance agreements. BlackRock was the first to do that. Everybody refiled, including ARC, with that new amendment. And this is what the SEC said in a response. They said, in sum, the exchange believes that this proposal is consistent with the requirements of Section C, B5 of the Act, that this filing sufficiently demonstrates that the Bitcoin futures market represents a regulated market of significant size and that on the whole, the manipulation concerns previously articulated by the commission are sufficiently mitigated. So it kind of sounds like they do feel like the surveillance clause is sufficient. So that's a good sign. But there are groups out there that are actively trying to stop this thing. They're going to use this comment period to do their best. Better Markets is one of those groups. They call themselves a legal counsel at a consumer advocacy group. And they've released a couple of statements strongly urging the SEC to decline these ETFs. And it seems like their issue is that there's a history of wash trading and concentration of the Bitcoin market. And maybe the implication is that a lot of trading activity happens on Binance. But I think also Binance seems to be having some issues, even though they reported that they're now fully registered in El Salvador, which as a very small country with very small financial markets, I'm not sure what advantage that gives them. But perhaps the demise of Binance or the shrinking of Binance's market share is kind of part of the bullishness for a Bitcoin ETF regulated in the U.S.? Reading the SEC's response to ARC, that if Coinbase is doing the trading on behalf of the ETF customer, and then Coinbase is doing the custody, and Coinbase is running the marketplace, and Coinbase is monitoring the marketplace and sharing that monitoring data with the SEC, then this concern may be addressed. These the better market folks might be barking up an old tree. And I, I read through one of their statements because they're all PDFs, of course. And all the references they cite are essentially old Forbes and Wall Street Journal articles from a few years ago. During that period where the media was really going crazy about how cyber criminals use Bitcoin, which they've almost entirely dropped now, but it was part of the news cycle back in the day. And so a lot of their references and concerns linked to those old FUD articles. And this is exactly what you've been talking about since we started this podcast. All of these poorly written articles that misstate the facts or get details wrong then become ammunition for critics far into the future. Yeah, people looking for confirmation bias or whatever it might be. On the bright side now, 
So we have nine asset managers that are on file at the SEC for a spot Bitcoin ETF. When you add up the ma- the money that they're all going to manage, it's going to be $15 trillion. And the next decision that we should hear about is November 11th, which they could punt that to January 10th. And the general consensus amongst the Kathy Woods and those on CNBC and you know all the commentators, the general consensus is, is that if the SEC approves these, they're going to approve all of them at once. So that way one doesn't get a super majority advantage by being out for two or three months before everybody else. They're going to approve all at once and it's just going to be hog wild. Well, that would certainly be exciting if that happened, I guess, just because the assumption is that once there are Bitcoin ETFs trading in the US, that's trillions of dollars of assets under management and some proportion of those funds will be in a Bitcoin ETF. Some of it. Mm -hmm. Now, here's my question to you, though. I have two, really, is how are these companies going to differentiate their products? They're all Bitcoin ETFs. They're going to have to have some sort of special sauce. And does it also mean we're going to see them marketing Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETFs? Are we going to see ad dollars spent on this? Absolutely. I think that the first form of differentiation is the fees on the ETF. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is incredibly expensive as a vehicle for holding Bitcoin. It charges 2% in fees every year, regardless if Bitcoin is up or down. So I think the presence of multiple ETF entrants will probably push the price of the ETF down pretty far. The thing about Bitcoin is it's not just a security. It has this financial asset quality, but it's also an actual digital thing that can do things. So I wonder if once these ETFs are approved, they'll attempt to differentiate themselves by offering some additional aspect of Bitcoin to their customers, like potentially the ability to trade your shares and receive Bitcoin, obviously, probably in a KYC way. But there just seem to be a lot of potentials of Bitcoin. And if the regulators are open to allowing these ETF offerings to explore them, they might end up being kind of interesting differentiated products with certain technical integrations, potentially. One of the pro ETF crowd arguments that I've been reading recently is that they argue that the number one buyer of a Bitcoin ETF will not be new buyers of Bitcoin, but existing hodlers who just want to get access to credit, essentially, because there's a lot of, you know, loan systems out there and whatnot that will use an ETF as collateral. And the argument is then that your counterparties become like the banks and the Fed instead of Genesis or BlockFi or Celsius, etc. And so it's like a legitimate way to get, um, you know, tax-free loan, I suppose, against an asset if it's in the CTF. So they surmise that the number one customer is going to be existing Bitcoiners. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, maybe initially there might be some very large professional holders of Bitcoin who would be interested in that kind of leverage. But it seems to me that the real demographic is everyone with a 401k or with retirement accounts because Bitcoin's been around for long enough for there to be financial professionals who are a little bit knowledgeable about it and can look at it in kind of an analytical way and say, listen, this thing's been around for over 10 years now. It's consistently gone up. Sure, it's volatile, but it's sort of differently volatile than the rest of your portfolio. So there needs to be an allocation here. So I feel like the real story is that Bitcoin becomes 1% of a conservative portfolio because that was impossible before. You had to go into Coinbase and buy Bitcoin. That was just technically too difficult and too much mental burden and too scary for most vanilla investors who just have a barely self-directed portfolio. You know, to that point, Dad, I have family members who back during the bull run were asking me about Bitcoin because they know of my long history. 
when I described the process of like buying it, that's where they just sort of checked out. They, that was just the straw too far to the, or the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, for the adoption is, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go create an account at this company I don't know anything about. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to recommend that my family invest in Bitcoin this way, but I could see how folks like that, that like my dad and, you know, my, my other family members, they have relationships with these companies where they buy ETFs and stocks and whatnot already through, and they've already been doing investing for 20, 30 years with these companies. And so they're much more comfortable spending their money with those companies or through those companies. And so I think it does make it more accessible to those types of folks. Absolutely. And personal finance and is and personal finance is very complicated and very individual. And in my experience talking to coworkers and family members, most people don't want to think about it. They find it very stressful. And so they want to kind of give up that mental burden to a professional yeah. who gives them quote unquote good advice. Yeah, they'll happily pay the management fee. Right. So the last 10 years have been an opportunity for financial advisors and others to observe Bitcoin. And I imagine that they'll be the real pushers eventually of these ETF products because it's a way for them to maybe differentiate themselves from other CFAs when they're dealing with their clients and, and sort of constructing portfolios. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on August 11th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... Hey, it's me. It's Chris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to discuss how the Lightning Development Kit has enabled Anchor Outputs in its latest release. We're going to have a discussion about inflation, or strictly speaking, producer and consumer prices. There is a new article from Lynn Alden about the hidden costs of reshoring. I think it kind of speaks to the decade of inflation narrative and suggests some places where price pressure and cost might come from. A wallet bug allowed hackers to steal $900,000 in Bitcoin. We'll cover that. And there's also reporting of a multi-party computation vulnerability discovered by Fireblocks that affected many institutional crypto wallets, but no funds were stolen. So that's an opportunity to talk a little bit about MPC, which is kind of an alternative to multisig. In Bitcoin education, BitMEX blog had an excellent research piece on drive chains, which we'll point to and maybe discuss briefly, as well as more material on multi-party computation. And then we have some feedback and boosts, and that's our show. Yeah, it is. It's a heck of a show. And uh, I am very, very much looking forward to the new Lightning developments percolating their way out into the community, because moving funds on and off of Lightning is very tricky for folks. Absolutely. And one of the issues is when you create a Lightning channel, you have to guess what the fee rate is going to be for your withdrawal transaction. The way that Lightning security works is that your counterparty doesn't have an incentive to lie about the state of the Lightning channel in order to steal funds because both of you have pre-signed withdrawal transactions. And if they issue a sort of untrue transaction or an old transaction that shows a previous state where they had more money in the channel, then your unilateral withdrawal transaction becomes valid and can immediately sweep the entire channel. The problem is, what if the fees that you estimated when you open the channel are too low? Suddenly, the security guarantees around Lightning fail 
because the fee market is different than when you open the channel. And Anchor Outputs solve this because the transaction that closes the channel doesn't have a high fee associated with it. Instead, it's a transaction that can be fee bumped with a child pays for parent transaction. So it's basically like the closed transaction, and then you send another transaction that spends itself and the closed transaction. So miners have to mine both to get the newer, higher fee transaction. And where I picture this going is just the software figures this out for you. So like today, I use a series of websites and tools to kind of figure this out when I'm going to open up a channel, when I'm going to try to do, or if I'm trying to do like a rebalance, a loop, I have to use a series of different tools to try to figure out what the fees should be. And it is so frustrating when you get it wrong. Absolutely. This is definitely a way to make Lightning more usable, more automated, and I think safer. And LDK is not in and of itself a wallet. It's a development kit that is built into wallets and built into nodes. So this is a bit down the stack, but potentially will be showing up in wallets in the next couple months, probably before the year is out. There's some really interesting development going on. Projects like the Mutiny Wallet are really riding the leading edge of some of these developments. And Mutiny Wallet is particularly fascinating. I'm playing around with it. Maybe I'll talk about it more in the future. But I think when you look at channel management today, with some of these developments that I see coming down the road, plus some of the tooling built on top of it, this is this stuff, we're going to look back at this in just even a year's time. And it's it's going to seem like the bad old days of having to build this by hand compared to where it's going to be, assuming all this stuff kind of comes together, like like Anchor Outputs, which we're starting to see show up in a development kit. And that's where it starts, goes out from there. You included a bunch of inflation numbers in our show notes, including the producer's price index and various measures of consumer inflation. Yeah, I tried to bring together a bunch of different data points from different sources into one spot because we're now well into uh, the Fed's actions to try to ease inflation, you know, raising rates and reducing their balance sheet, letting letting things sort of they've they've slowed down a little bit, but kind of, you know, seems like the seems like the rate increases will probably continue for a little while. So what is the state of things? I wanted to kind of get an idea. And you talked about the, the producer inflation that is up 0.8 percent, which is above expectations of 0.7. Nothing major there. Nothing too scary in the inflation. But there's some areas like food and renter inflation and shelter inflation, which are still up in the high numbers, like 8 percent, 7 percent. So if, depending on how you slice the data, some things are still extremely, extremely painful for people. And we're actually seeing some of those numbers tick up in this last month. I think that, you know, I don't know if I'm not trying to say, oh, here comes hyperinflation. We're, I'm just, I think it's, it's just interesting to me, dad, that after all of this effort to reduce inflation, we're still seeing some of this stuff tick up after all this time. And what I see when I look at these numbers is that we're seeing lowering inflation or maybe even deflation deeper down the economy on the producer side, but we still have price pressure on the consumer side because renter inflation is up, shelter inflation, I don't know how those are differentiated, but they're very similar at 8% and 7.7%. So we see price pressure for regular people on the upside, but then on the producer side, we see less price pressure, which basically means demand is falling. Okay. So to me, that speaks to potentially deflationary pressure and recession, you know, either happening now or in the near future. You see. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then on the other side, the spending at the U.S. government level is wild. Our year to date total on just the interest is $726 billion. So we're on track to see our first $1 trillion plus 
interest expense on the U.S. debt, probably in the next year, right? Because we're already, for this year so far, we're already at $726 billion just on the interest alone. And we've talked about how the interest trajectory of the U.S. government's balance sheet does not appear sustainable. And Janet Yellen responded quite aggressively to the credit rating agency's Fitch downgrade of U.S. government debt from AAA+, the highest rating, to AA+, which is just one step lower. And the reason that Fitch gave for that downgrade was that the U.S. does not have a credible plan to control the amount of interest they're paying on their debt. The U.S. government doesn't seem to have the political ability to ever lower spending. I would like to also add that the U.S. government has a huge number of off-balance sheet liabilities in the form of social programs that are not correctly accounted for because they're pay-as-you-go programs that are not going to be paid as we go because they require a larger working population to support a smaller retired and elderly population. And that's just not the demographics that exist anymore. The U.S. is an aging country, and there are fewer workers than retirees at this point in history. So the reason that I think that the U.S. fiscal situation is kind of interesting is because, one, the obvious solution to this at a government level is financial repression, which is basically to shut the exits for the U.S. economy, which is very problematic because the U.S. economy kind of needs to be globalized to provide dollars to the world, but to essentially reduce interest rates through federal reserve interactions, basically buying large amounts or maybe almost all of U.S. government-issued debt, and thereby monetizing it, and preventing financial institutions, banks, and consumers from escaping those negative interest rates with high real inflation. You know, this is essentially a way to tax people's savings, tax people's wages without any law, without any obvious tax. It's kind of a way to sneakily extract value from the rest of the society outside of government and use it to kind of heal the government's balance sheet. So I think that that is a very likely solution to the U.S. government debt problem because it doesn't really need a lot of political will to do. You're just going to kind of default to that if you do nothing, in my opinion. And in that environment, Bitcoin becomes very useful. Yes. And it's so complicated that people can't really wrap their heads around it to even try to get the representatives to do something about it. And at the same time that that's happening, which is going to put massive pressure on family wealth and savings and individual costs, the average interest rates that consumers are experiencing are nuts now. A new car on average, has a 9% interest rate if you have decent credit. If you have decent credit, a used car is now 14%. And if you have good credit, a credit card interest rate is now at 25%. And the, the scary number is that the credit card debt has started to decline when the STEMI checks went out. But now it is just parabolically been going up and it's gone up $250 billion since 2020. And some people point out that the other kind of nasty side of that is that there's still $3.5 trillion of untapped credit card debt. So the American people seem to be just loading their credit cards up since inflation really took off. And they've only used up 22% of their available credit. So they're likely going to just continue charging that up at a 25% interest rate. Right. What are people going to do as prices increase and their wages don't. They're going to use more credit because they don't have the ability to downsize their lives. The price of things that are going up are essential things like food and shelter and rent and transportation. Yeah. You own the things you own. Like I, I have an RV. Those are expensive to maintain. Sometimes you just have to get work done. Where does that money come from when your savings that you would have been putting aside for an RV rainy day are now going towards everyday food and things like that? It's like it just there's no place to go except for credit for some people. You got to get cars fixed or whatnot. 
Household debt level now is at $17.1 trillion. 1.6 of that is auto loans. $1 trillion of that is credit cards. Student loans just hit $1.6 trillion, a new record. And of course, the payments, the interest payment on that, the interest for those payments, I should say, has been on pause since the pandemic, but resumes next month. That's going to put more pressure on folks. It's, um, it's a lot. And I, I personally am feeling it. We're managing, but I, you know, just barely. And there's some months that were really tight. And that's still with a good portion of our fresh food is now coming from our own little farm. And like our eggs come from neighbors on where they have their little farm on the other side of the property. And, you know, like and trading uh, services for other goods and services like that's still really trying to reduce our costs and trade more. We're still some months. It's it's really, really tight. And then you add in birthdays and unexpected expenses or things like dental care. And it's just uh, I don't know, man, I just I, I don't understand how, how anybody's doing it, to tell you the truth. No, me neither. I mean, I think it's really, really difficult. And yeah, I mean, you have to, yeah, there's like just sacrifices to be made somewhere. Something has to be unpaid. And we're doing less, you know, we've definitely, we've cut back on going out and whatnot. Well, and and giving up on family traditions, right? Like we used to have, we had a family tradition since 2017, 2016 of going to Montana with the kids every summer. We have a little favorite hot springs, a little spot over there that we love. And uh, we had to give it up this year because the price of gas, plus the cost of camping's gone up, plus the cost of service on the RV. We just, you know, we had to cut back. And that's not the only family tradition we've had to give up on, but that's, that's where you start to cut back first, right? Is those things. And this is how recessions or slowdowns start. It's just people cutting back on things and it often starts in discretionary spending. As you've pointed out, advertising is being cut at a business level. And then you also see it in vacations. Stephen Van Meter has been talking about how when he goes to the Disney parks in Florida, they're empty. He lives there, so he goes there a lot, I guess. So we can see it, you know, some signals that maybe things are really taking a sharp dive down in terms of recession or contraction. Yeah, I think so. And this discussion about cost, I think, leads in nicely to Lynn Alden's article about the hidden costs of reshoring. Reshoring means bringing heavier industry manufacturing back to your country. In this case, Lynn is using the U.S. as an example, but I think that a lot of European countries are also thinking about reshoring some industries if they can, because the dependence on China as a global manufacturing hub really turned out quite badly for everybody during the COVID lockdowns. Offshoring manufacturing and dirty industry to China and the developing world was a great idea when globalization was working smoothly and supply chains were at overcapacity and had a lot of slack to take into account disruptions. But that really changed a lot in the past 10 years as supply chain focused companies, shipping companies built themselves for efficiency. And there's this theme of efficiency balance sheet efficiency, financial efficiency that in many ways precipitated the 2008 financial crisis that we still haven't recovered from. Actually, that was a monetary crisis. Sorry, I misspoke. But also the supply chain crisis, because a lot of innovations in supply chain management have to do with just-in-time delivery, holding less inventory, requiring very tight manufacturing and shipping schedules that just don't work anymore, especially with changes in global shipping infrastructure. The introduction of larger container ships that are more fuel efficient. On paper, they look very financially clever because your cost of fuel 
her TEU goes to almost zero, which is like amazing. What's the flip side? The flip side is that these ships cannot vary their speed. So once they get late on their run, they just get later and later as they stop at every port and they get delayed. They are so large that when they arrive at ports, they swamp the port's ability to unload containers. Often they have to wait longer. So this creates all of these built-in delays that are hard to estimate and makes just essentially globalization and global supply chains more expensive and less attractive. And it kind of incentivizes onshoring for all sorts of reasons. But onshoring is very, very difficult because one, the energy infrastructure in the developed world has not been invested in in a very long time. And as a result, there's just you know, not as many sources of high voltage energy to build manufacturing facilities. So you need infrastructure investments, you need road investments, and you also need investments in human capital that have not been happening, at least in the United States, because the incentives for the past 20 years have been to work in finance, technology, maybe healthcare. There's been no incentive to work in manufacturing and pursue skilled jobs like that because there hasn't been money there. There hasn't been investment there. That's been a thinning part of the economy. And so there, like we've talked about on the show previously, there seem to be fewer people interested in working in those fields. And it'll take a very long time to scale up the workforce. Maybe it might not even be possible for some fields that will precipitate being able to onshore. And Lynn makes the point that even if you could automate large portions of it, and she points to two recent examples uh, where that failed, the biggest one being TSMC, even if you could automate large portions of the production, the energy infrastructure is the real killer piece. And she's got a great graphic in there that shows how much energy China uses to manufacture the solar panels and the things that people really are buying from China. And it's just astronomical how much energy they're using and how they're powering that with coal. And so there is a lot of energy we'd have to make up and then the infrastructure to get the energy to these places. She thinks between the labor issues and the energy infrastructure issues alone, that's a decade's work. Easily. And the other flip side of creating more automated facilities is what you're doing is you're investing more capital to use less labor. Well, if interest rates aren't very low, then that capital investment becomes increasingly expensive over time. So this also, in my view, leads to the conclusion that financial repression and kind of national economic policy is in the cards because there might be a situation where certain industries get very low interest rates that are kind of mandated by the government and subsidized loans and other industries or consumers still have to pay 15% on their car loans. I think Lynn points out that reshoring is a very good idea because relying on global supply chains as globalization breaks apart is clearly not a safe and reasonable strategy. At the same time, there are many costs associated with onshoring, some immediate, some long term, and they seem likely to contribute to increasing prices for consumer goods and products and infrastructure going forward, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a good snapshot of the challenges and the differences what we're facing. And for Lynn, it's a shorter article. It's only like 2000 words. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And speaking of the show notes, dad duties call this week. So it's going to be a little bit shorter of an episode, but we have notes about uh, vulnerabilities that impacted uh, Bitcoin users that were using LibBitcoin. We have uh, some altcoin vulnerability news in there. Also some XRP price shenanigans on Gemini who frothed over listing it again. And I have some really embarrassing links to their tweets. So do check that out because 
We also have a question for you, and we'd like you to boost in with your thoughts on drive chains. Would you like to, us to talk more about them? Are you skeptical of them? Do you understand what a drive chain is? Uh, because it's a popular topic right now, and somebody we respect a lot, kind of uh, not a big fan of drive chains. So let us know. Of course, you can always get in contact with the show, Bitcoin Dad Pod at Proton Mail or Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter, probably. But probably the best way would be a boost. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Or you can join our Matrix channel and chat real time. Details at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. We're hosting the Bitcoin channel over there, and we'll have links in the notes. And that brings us to our boost. And we have a baller boost from Baffo this week who sent in 85,250 sats with the message, Baffo is Bacco. Heck yeah, Bacco big time Baffo. And I noticed you're using Breeze too. I'd be curious to know how that's going for you. I always get this one right. A Hannigan comes in, definitely got that right with 20,000 sats using Fountain. And this is actually uh, echoed a couple of times. So we could probably combine this with um, another boost. But dad, is there any lessons to be learned from the multi-sig problems you inferred to on a recent episode? Absolutely. Never test a wallet with funds that you are not ready to lose. What do you think about for episode 100 telling the story? Are you ever going to tell the full story? I am not sure that it's worth telling. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, okay. <laughs> but basically, don't set up a system you need to rely on when you're under a time deadline. Give yourself plenty of time, days, maybe even weeks. Test it thoroughly. Test it using testnet. Try to recover from it. See what happens when one of the keys gets lost. Can you recreate the wallet? You know, you want to just really play around with it. I think one thing that's better today is that there are a lot of multi-sig native solutions that are quite reliable. I know that Spectre Wallet is a really great multi-sig solution and is available in many popular node distributions. I also believe that Sparrow Wallet can do multi-sig in a reasonable way. I also think that you probably don't need multi-sig until you're over a couple of Bitcoin. That's just my personal opinion. So for many people, don't worry about it. And thank you so much for the boost, Ahanigan and Baffo. True Grits boosts in 10,000 sats over two boosts. Did not send a message, but we really appreciate the sats. Oh, there was one message. He liked the Barack interview. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. JCX FNT comes in with 14,000. 674 sets across two boosts using Fountain. I also asking about the story on the multi-sig wrecking and then coming in with uh, a note on nuclear energy. I'm not a big Oliver Stone fan, but the documentary he did called Nuclear Now, I thought, was very good. I have been wondering if I should watch that. Thanks, JC. That's that's good to know. Thanks for the boost and the recommendation. I have referenced the multi-sig problems I've had in the past, but just be very careful and you probably don't need it unless you have sort of a specific situation, I think. There's like a marketing opportunity here, like a boost bounty or like an episode 100 special, the day dad got wrecked. You know, I'm telling you, you can play this up. The pro in me just wants you to lean in. <laughs> but it's going to be like that, um, you know, that guy with the mustache who had the whole special about the safe that they were going to open and then they open the safe and there's nothing there. And I just feel like it could... Yeah. It could be kind of a letdown. What you do is then you get an interview with somebody else who has a really good wreck story, and then you play that after your your basic story. Okay, so I love boost it. in if you have an exciting yeah. story about how you got yeah. wrecked, and you are okay with the Bitcoin Dad Pod monetizing your distress. And thank you for your donation to the value of Bitcoin. Hal was right. Boost in 2100 sats. The longest lockup in hex is 5555 because of some technicalities of the contract. The hex contract would create hex for people who signed a message with their Bitcoin private key depending on how much Bitcoin the key could unlock. The project was originally supposed to be Bitcoin hex, but Richard thought hex was better branding. 
Wow, Hal, thank、mm. you so much for the history of Hex. I've always thought it was very interesting. That's some good context too, Hal. Really appreciate that. The Golden Dragon comes in with a row of ducks. Pew pew. Great show as always. Thank you, Golden Dragon. Pew pew indeed. At Halak boosts in ten thousand sats. I recently took the plunge into Umbral and Lightning Node operation. Can you share thoughts and resources about wallets rebalancing and other operator tips? Maybe back catalog episodes cover this. Thanks. Boy, welcome into the world of Umbral. I'm still an Umbral user myself,、um, and、uh, so far there's not have nothing nothing I haven't been able to fix. But that's because I've also run Ubuntu systems for years. I put a couple of links in there.、Uh, Lightning Terminal is an app that's available on the Umbral App Store. This is a really good visual overview of your channels and their capacity. And for me, it just is the one that's the cleanest and easiest to read. But additionally, it gives you a mechanism to loop in and loop out of channels to rebalance them very easily, and it'll help you monitor. Monitor the fee and all of that. So, if you're looking at managing your liquidity, I recommend Lightning Terminal on the Umbral app. Dad mentioned Specter Wallet earlier. They do have a slightly older version of Specter Wallet's web app on the Umbral store,、um, but it is very easy to connect things like Phoenix Wallet or Zeus to your Umbral node and then move those Sats to a wallet. Lightning Terminal is a great recommendation. Neural P or Neural. Boost in twelve thousand sats with the message just a simple thank you and thank you so much for the sats. Yes, thank you. Curious how you're liking Castomatic. Mirror Mortals podcast comes in with a row of ducks using Fountain.、Uh, coming in from episode ninety four, Fitch better have my money. And they write reminds me of the movie quote. Where's the money? We.、Uh, <laughs> what is he trying to say there? Oh, look, I think it's a Lebowski reference. So he's saying, "Where's the money, Lebowski?" But instead, he says, "The U.S. federal government ski." <laughs> <laughs> We want the money, the U.S. federal government ski. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Ah,、oh, yeah. Okay. See, I, you know what? My 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 thing of shame is I I have yet to see the Big Lebowski. I'm going to watch it, but I, I have not seen the Big Lebowski, so that's why I'm slow. And we need to live stream you watching the Big Lebowski and me talking through the whole thing. Yeah, the dad commentary track. Yeah, I'd be down for that. Maybe maybe we'll do like a like a crossover thing with the Mirror Mortals podcast. Watch it; that'd be pretty great. Oh, that would be fantastic. Thank you for the row of ducks. Sorry, I didn't get the joke at first. He's very fit. I don't know if he would consent to sitting down to watch a movie. We might have to do like a circuit training as it's on or something. <laughs> Yeah, we could do it on some treadmills or something. <laughs>、uh, thank you, everybody who did boost in. Of course, there's the one thousand sat cutoff. We had ten total boosts, twelve boosts in total, but ten total unique boosters、uh, for one hundred fifty-eight thousand seven hundred six sats. Thank you, everybody who boosts in and supports the show. There's a couple of ways you can do it. You hear a lot of those folks up there. A lot of the good people they went and got a new podcast app, something like Fountain or Castomatic or Podverse at podcastapps.com, and they loaded it up with some sats and they、uh, boosted off and they enjoy some great podcasting tutorial features as well. But you don't have to switch if you don't want to. Just get Albi, get Albi dot com, get your browser extension, load it up with some sats either directly. They got a couple of options for that now, or with something like the Cash App, and then head over to the Podcast Index. Head on over podcastindex dot org. Look for the Bitcoin Dad Pod, and you can boost right in there from our entry on their web page, and you don't have to switch podcast app. Thank you so much to everyone who boosted in. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on August eleventh, twenty twenty three. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here in a slightly shorter format due to baby issues. Remotely with with me, it's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.